Hi, this is Kenyatta Emmanuel. You know, for 25 years I felt like I had no role in society, no voice. I was surrounded by incredible people, incredible artists, and we all felt as though we would never have the opportunity to be heard. That's why I'm so glad to be a part of this project, so glad that PEN America has made it their mission to share the voices of the voiceless and to ensure that that message is heard. This is a wonderful opportunity and I'm very grateful for it. I'm very grateful that I could add whatever I could to make this a success, to touch you, to offer something that will resonate with you and with yours and with those people who are still feeling as though they have no voice. Watched pots, they never boil, they toil and spin, they wonder when they go marching in two by two, praying down on what they do, the cost is high, the price is steep, no sell by date, when life is cheap, so pray the Lord, your soul can keep tomorrow's dying in your sleep on the clock on the count counting days till the day that you're on your way out on the street on the grind on your feet on your knees on your mind all the time on the clock Green acres and acres of green Re-rolling shakes in the shape of a dreaming of home Long forgotten if ever was known Holding tight to the slice of the nothing you own Relatively speaking slow, going fast, gone Reminiscing on decisions of lives passed on Your way down so far below that you're waist deep in the sand And as you drown beneath the years You hear the sweep of the hand on the clock On the count Counting days till the day that you're on your way out on the street on the grind, on your feet, on your knees, on your mind, all the time, on the clock, on the count, counting days till the day that you're on your way out on the street, on the grind, on your feet, on your knees, on your mind, all the time, on the clock. As it draws to an end Just slips away because it's nobody's friend How it flies in the good times and crawls in the bad And there's oh so much of it when it's all that you have On the clock, on the count Counting days till the day that you're on your way out On the street, on the grind 
always on your mind all the time on the clock on the count counting days till the day that you're on your way out on the street on the grind on your feet on your knees on your mind all the time on the this is Milton Jones reading Flat Top for Cherry Hill. I am formerly incarcerated, 23 years on the inside, and I am also an alumni of Rehabilitation Through the Arts, RTA where my acting career began. That painful past is why it means a lot to me to read this piece. So without further ado, Flat Top for Cherry Hill by Paul Betts. Jimmy was patient while I covered him from the neck down with the sheet. As I began to slowly trim his mangy mattered hair, Jimmy stated, I guess they're going to win. Win what, I asked. He began to talk about his last appeal. Everyone in prison has an issue on appeal. Without one, you have lost all hope. Jimmy's hope was gone. Life means life in Michigan. Only I cheated them. I'm going to die young, he laughed. One is somewhat at a loss when confronted with an aspect of reality that we ordinarily choose to ignore. We generally look away from a dead dog along the side of the road. We are privately angered that we had to see death at all. We all like anonymous death. Jimmy had about two weeks left and was anything but anonymous. He seemed reconciled to his personal clock. I asked if his family had been to see him. It was then that I learned about Cherry Hill. Somewhere near the state prison of Southern Michigan, the largest walled prison in the world, is a mound of earth. Blanket buried for decades on this mound of the truly forgotten. Not only has satiety turned its back on these people, but their families have forgotten them. Some were old men who outlived their families and friends. Some whose heinous acts have separated them completely from society. And some so poor, families had no alternatives. Jimmy told me these people would soon be friends and neighbors. I was cutting his hair slowly. I was not used to touching the living dead. Jimmy smiled. He could tell that his story troubled him. He asked if I could do him a favor. He wanted a flat top haircut. When he was young and before he had real problems, he had a lot of friends. They all had flat tops and it made them feel cool. He was like to be cooled again. I had never given a flat top. Truth is, I was not all that good a barber, but I said I would try. There was much trial and error, and eventually a fairly decent flat top. I took the handheld mirror and showed him the results of my efforts. Man, those guys on Cherry Hill are going to be real envious, he said. He did look good. It was mostly his smile. All the nurses made comments about how handsome he was. There was a certain comradeship that had developed among those of similar faith in the Quranic care unit. A big, young, good-hearted male nurse pushed Jimmy up and down the hall to stop and talk for a few seconds with the bedridden long-termers he had gotten to know. Comments of, 
go, Jimmy. They can't beat you. And lucky there aren't women on Cherry Hill. They sure would be in trouble, echoed as flat-top Jimmy was wheeled down to his room, put in bed and locked in. His dying memories, I believe, were of the times of his youth when he had friends with flat tops and hope. Alongside a bramble overgrown path on Cherry Hill lies flat top Jimmy with his friends forever. This is Casey Gerald, reading Notes for If I Fade Away, Brownout 03, by Justin Rovios Monson. This is to remind you that I loved you way back. You, with your sleepless rivers and strings of power lines, titans gathered into formations of tender flesh and luminous pleasures. You are always moving. Longing, we say because desire is full of endless distances. An apartment building, two boys, different shades of brown, son above, acting as father. Prayer is two fists arcing, brown boy with good hair choked by the parentheses of his shoulders, broken horse. Please don't mistake these notes for elegies. These are the breaks. The summer where I learned of hunger and the absence of pain, Bridgewater, that slag heap hoopty moored in our oak-ridden suburbs, glimmers of future lives. Sashabal, Dixie, maybe, loose change for 75-cent conies. The big homies pushing bags behind the skate park, all the white paint peeling off the divider wall. The chain-link fence we tore back between our cracked pavement and the fairway. The brownout that melted five days. How I dipped my feather-light body in the tub to keep cool. The water searching me like so many soft lights. The general mind was hollow back then, and I did as I do now, sketched your patterns into the margins of my ribs. This was before meet me at the corner wash, or your turn to go to the marathon, became slang for the lies we believed. Before the 3 a.m. street lights, the palms crowded with earth tones. Before I learned logic and before we should have read Hamlet, Lord, we know who we are, yet we know not what we may be. Where I learned to be in the middle of bright islands and dime bags, those whisper-filled trees, the pavement begging to kiss my knees. I think writing is essential to change. Um, when it comes to social justice, I, I've always said litigation, legislation, and protest are required to make change in this country. But one thing that's unstated in that is the need for the artist. And there's always been a need in social change for the artist, for the writer, the playwright, for the sculptor, for the poet, the dancer, 
all of those creative outlets are necessary. And in, I'm concerned because I really don't see the artist's role in this the way it should be. And I hope it's rising up. I, I remember playing um, music by, by Winston Marcellus and after his father died, and you could feel the, the emotion in the music. We need to have the musicians, we need to have those people who can speak to the soul and spirit and heart of what we're going through. And I'm hoping that we have a national or international memorial that, that gives us a chance to grieve, to cry, to have our, our emotions expressed. And that's what the artist brings to the table as we go through social change. We've got to have the artists there. And that's in every realm of art. And I look forward to seeing how this plays out. If I, as an artist, hold on to just George Floyd and think seriously about everything that's implicated and all that happened, I think you know, a lot of stuff gets revealed, like why Breonna Taylor doesn't come up in a way that she should. You think about like why we were having a lot of these same conversations when Freddie Gray, Michael Brown, Eric Gardner. It's like, why are we having the same conversations? And the truth is like, like you could run the names down and, and the names for me are markers for the weight that a kind of state violence carries. You know, they aren't markers for like, Dwayne, do you fear for the life of your son? No, that, that's not what's happening. I fear for the sanctity of this democracy. You know what I mean? I fear for the ability for us to go on as a nation because we haven't been able to figure out some fundamental thing that should be true, which is you should not be murdered doing an arrest, period. You should definitely not be murdered doing an arrest for some shit you should never be locked up for in the first place. It's interesting because I don't, I don't really know how art speaks to any of that, except I think for me, art is the thing that like really, really, really forces me to slow it all down. Daryl Larson, reading Saturn Rising. Arthur Fitzgerald. After artist's second stay, 120 days ad seg for making veiled threats to a therapist, he was moved to Two Wing, one of the typical dislocations that occur on return to population. And lights out, squatting on discarded plastic buckets brought in from the docks, they hunkered down over Nova's headboard and constructed artist's astrological chart. Nova, sipping instant coffee between streams of chatter, had a floppy, ephemeris, weighty tone spread over his knees. Date of birth, 7 November, 1992, 1803 hours, sunset, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Concentric circles and triangles took form in the yellow light of the desk lamp. After three nights of work, Melba put the pencil down and proclaimed with confidence, your next visit to the hole will be in three months. It's not an actual hole, as in a hole in the ground like a mouse hole or a snake hole. 
though it could be thought of as a shelter or a place to hide. Many consider convicts animals, burrowing nocturnals. The grave is a hole. It allows a body to decompose in darkness, out of sight, out of mind. A hole is also a trap, something you stumble into that you then can't get out of. The body orifice, having a sexual function, is often referred to as a hole, like a mouth, a pussy, an asshole. Phonetically, we call to mind a refuge with holistic purposes, a sanctuary, a retreat, where a prisoner rehabilitates, becomes whole. Many think of being in the hole as being in debt, and for an inmate, it does entail that because you lose your good time and your work credits and your job and your status, a recurring catastrophe that kept artists in the lowest paying jobs having to make up the difference in the sex trade. Nova, focused as always on the cosmic, thinks of it as a black hole from which there is no escape. Though he prefers to put more emphasis on the event horizon, that point of no return, and the moments leading up to its crossing. Artists ran away from home at age 14. They didn't literally run away, unless that's what you want to call hiding in the barn for a couple of days. He crawled into a narrow dirt space between an empty horse stall and the north outer wall next to the chicken yard. His foster parents no longer kept horses, and there was nothing in the barn except rotting hay and stored implements, the tractor, a hay cart, and an old truck engine. At night, he snuck into the house after his foster parents went to sleep to get something to eat. Two whole days he spent in that cramped and dirty and moldy-smelling barn, filled with a kind of total joy he'd never known before. He imagined his foster parents sitting at the kitchen table, worried, discussing him. He would think about the scars on his chest from the cigarette burns his real parents had given him. Nobody was very clear concerning the why. The placement of Saturn, the peculiar nature of his twelfth house in its relation to his fourth, indicating long periods of isolation. But explaining the why still left you with the dilemma of the how once you were there. Artists went to the library with Supernova and poured over coffee table books on the cosmos, color photographs of Mars and Saturn. The planets Nova claimed were giving him all his trouble. Nova was inclined to look for influence flowing from the outward to the inward. Artists, vice versa. He spread artist charts out on the table and used a pencil to indicate the maleficent positions. Saturn on the ascendant in opposition to the sun in the seventh house. Mars precisely in between, square to both. Bad voodoo. Artists thought of himself as a spiritual warrior, a hero of the imagination. Nova had red hair, green eyes, and toenails black 
with fungus. With five planets in the fire sign of Leo, your metabolism runs hot and you will sweat easily and profusely. Nova's son was in Taurus. He was rooted in the earth. Very stubborn. A builder of houses. A foundation for people. He was a woman in a man's body. The way he put it, each day was a circle cycle. Each week, each month, each year, each decade, each lifetime. And the natal chart simply took you through the cycle. The trick being to find your place in it. It all went down in the secluded shower room. An isolated era, area of cold beige tile. An array of showers and sinks and wooden benches. Four officers in breath masks and blue latex gloves stood waiting, flexing their fingers, while a plane closed told artists to strip. The children lived in a house trailer a mile away, through the sparsely wooded hollow, a dirt area along which artists rode his bike, had a large oak with a rope's wings strung from a lower branch, Artists parked the bike and pushed the two children, a boy and a girl, on the swing. Artist was to hand each garment to an officer as he removed it. The officer would then examine the garment and toss it to the floor, a dark, cold place in late afternoon. Their voices were reverberating off the walls like hollow echoes, pale light above through a clouded window. Showers dripping. The children told him they were cousins, not siblings. He took the leading them out into the hollow for adventures, farther each successive time, until they were able to see his boat across the field. Artis kept his focus on a rust-colored water stain in the corner stall, a Rorschach, beetle-shaped, fractal, stretching from the ceiling to a point above the mop bucket. He led them across the field into the barn and suggested they play a game. He had them stand up on the workbench and remove their clothes. He received each garment from them as they removed it. The plain-clothes droopy face had a mouth slightly open all the time. He initially mistook the burn scars for tattoos. The officers made a catalog of his tattoos. He placed the children side by side, naked, stepped back, and extended his hands toward them to find the energy. The levels were very high. Fluid, curving. Abstract lines and circles composed of black ink and bare skin. They entwine and connect like a highway interchange. They break off or lay straight or twirl into spirals. Artists stepped forward and placed his hands flat against their genitals. His left hand on the boy and his right hand on the girl. The energy ran through his arms and shot up and down his spine. Batshit splattered on the workbench beside them. 
the children stared straight ahead the whole time and didn't move. The tattoos are all of a piece. They connect everywhere at some point or other. They are images of the very worms that will devour his corpse once he's dead. On a warm summer night of dark rain clouds, strings of bare bulbs and larger lights circled the tent, the packed columns of the congregation swaying and sounding, praise him, hallelujah. Heat, lightning scribbled across the clouds. The old gospel song swelled into its chorus, the congregation on their feet clapping, following the pastor's lead on stage, who paced around, pumping his arms, whipping the microphone cord, singing lead and shouting, The distant rainstorm sideswiped the district and let a cool breeze flap the tent. The pastor headed down the aisle, laying hands on foreheads, pronouncing mighty benedictions as the flock swayed and fell backward on the sawdust. Artist, sandwiched between his parents, transfixed, could sense an awesome force being unleashed. As he got closer, Artist felt he was being given to the man's reaching grasp. Reddish-blue energy sparkled along the ends of outstretched fingers, reaching, reaching, contact. Artist was never the same after that. Artist was released from Martinville, and the municipal office gave him a job in the park at the riverside, picking up trash. He was too old to hustle. The days were long, but there was no rush. No one bothered him. He had time to bring the old head squatting under the plank boards by the burnt building a sandwich and a cup of coffee. He spent a lot of time walking along the river, pretending to work. His favorite thing was to hide in the storage shed where they kept the lawnmowers. There was a separate room in the shed about the size of a jail cell. When the scars burned, he would lock himself in and sit on the concrete floor. No one bothered him. Far above, in the darkness beyond the light, stars and constellations turned like a carousel forever. And on each day that passed, he could feel Saturn rising. He knew that he could wait. Hello, my name is Nicole Shawan Jr. and I'd like to thank PEN America's Prison and Writing Justice Program and Works of Justice Podcast for giving me the opportunity to contribute to this beautiful offering. As a woman writer and felon, I am grateful to give voice to the literary art created by another woman writer who happens to be incarcerated. I am honored to read this poem about women like the ones who raised me, women like the ones I love most. I hope that I give this piece the honor it deserves. Okay, with that said, again, this is Nicole Shawan Jr. reading Prison Eulogies by Yvette M. Lewisell. The ones who died never mattered much 
except in here, where the stories never end because they're too real. Michelle, who beat her girl until she got out and got her own self killed. Stella, who laughed and laughed until that last hit hit her vein. Woda thought a pulled tooth would make Kim bleed to death, or that Pat's heart was really that bad. They don't make announcements here, but we always know. And every time, I can't kneel down for months after. My mouth won't move the way it should. It's not me. It's never me. It's always me. My name is Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and I'm lending my voice to this project because we need to end mass incarceration. Whether it's a play or a poem, a speech, a sermon, a book, whether or not we put our voices in protest on the streets or in social media, we need to do everything we can to shed light on this mass incarceration of individuals tearing apart families and communities. I am a playwright, civil rights attorney. I am a constitutional law professor and an author. Every platform I find in which I can give my voice to ending mass incarceration, I will do so. I think it's important for all of us to do what we can to stop this beast. It's time that it be laid to rest. Mass incarceration must end. Hello, my name is Chanel Gabriel. I'm a poet, a singer, and a health advocate from New York City, Brooklyn. And it meant a lot to me to be a part of this project, one, because it was a lot of fun to do, but also mainly because it allowed me to be a part of the process of uplifting the voices of people that a lot of times get overlooked, the creativity that exists. And um, I believe that all people have stories to tell, stories to create, um, and that, that can help them through any space that they're in. And um, no matter their circumstances, their voices, their art deserves to be heard. Hi, my name is Josie Whittlesey. Um, I contributed to this pen project because I believe wholeheartedly in the um, benefits of arts programs and having an opportunity for people who are incarcerated to express themselves. And any time that I can lend a hand in helping that expression um, be more fully realized, I'm gonna do it. Time, a short play by Starling Thomas. Characters, Hi, early 30s African-American in year 10 of a 45 year drug conspiracy sentence. Drives to live by her own moral code and doesn't trust the system. Kayla, mid-twenties, Caucasian, a recovering drug addict serving a four-month sentence for trafficking illegals. Naive to the prison world, always sees the good in people and searching for a friend. The guard, man, late forties, indifferent to the system, works for the prison because he couldn't get a job anywhere else and only there to collect a check. Setting a two-man prison holdover cell during the time of mass incarceration in America. Prologue, sometime in the millennial, 
The lights come up as Kai sits quietly in the cell, reading over her legal paperwork, humming and rapping to a beat inside her head. Kai is a stunning woman who has become a hardened prisoner and believes the system is meant to keep all black people captive. She's been handed down a 45-year sentence for conspiracy to sell crack cocaine. Her family has deserted her, and she has no one but herself. Kai has been waiting for the United States Marshals to pick her up for two months. Kai has made the cell her home and hopes they will come and pick her up any day to take her to her designated prison. Her hair is braided back, and she wears her prison attire extra baggy. Her diction is crisp, and she is educated. Act one. They say history repeats itself. I say we were slaves then, we're slaves now, they just rearrange us on the shelf. I was birthed into a system designed to fail. Will I ever find success? Only this time will tell. I remember when I was a young girl, writing letters to my mama and daddy in jail. Who knew back then that I was up next in the cell? Hmm. A repetitious cycle from generation to generation. I guess it's to be expected when you're black and living in the most incarcerated nation. A loud buzzing sound. The guard and Kayla enter and stand at the front of the cell. Open cell 11. Kayla, a frail woman with blonde hair and bright blue eyes, stands at the cell door, holding her bed cot and jail clothes in her hand. Kai doesn't turn around and look. She keeps nodding her head to her own beat. A loud buzzing sound and the cell door closes. Kayla looks around, disturbed by her new atmosphere. I'm Kayla. I just got here. I don't care who you are. Don't bother me and I won't bother you. Stay on your side and I'll stay on my side and we won't have no problems. That's your side right there. Make sure your bed is inspection ready by 7 a.m. What does inspection ready mean? Don't tell me this is your first time being locked up. Damn, why they always want to give me the new one? Look, I'm not your friend. I don't care about your problems, and I damn sure don't care to get to know you. I'm not your babysitter or your prison mom, cousin, or sister. Understand? I'm going to tell you these rules one time and one time only. You don't get it? That's on you. Breakfast is at 6, lunch is at 9, and dinner is at 3. We count three times a day. They set up rules and then they don't want to follow them themselves. I don't talk to the police, so if you do, you might as well get asked to move right now because I don't tolerate snitches. Understand? Doc day is on Wednesday if you get money and don't expect me to give you anything. Y'all never did nothing for us but take from my people, so don't expect no handouts either. <laughs> Oh, hell nah. We not gonna have that. No, 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 no. Why are you crying? There ain't no crying in the cell. Drive them to up right now. I'm not gonna deal with this. Guard, guard, guard. Every time. Why can't I ever just get a cellmate who can do time? I'm sorry. I just, I just, it's, it's hard for me. Oh, and you don't think it's hard for me? I'm not saying that, but I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. Away from my family and friends and my, my daughter, she needs me. It's my fault. 
It's all my fault. Stop, stop crying. Stop crying. Stop crying. Damn. How much time you got? Four months. I got four months. I got four months for trafficking illegals across the border. I don't even know why I did it. I need the money and it seemed like a good opportunity at the time. Just a little extra cash in my pocket to pay my bills and buy my daughter some school clothes. I'm here just because I need a little extra money. We all in here for just a little extra money. The kingpin snitch and they get less time. They rat on the little people and the prosecutor shows them favor. But what am I supposed to say when I don't know nothing? He didn't tell me nothing. What am I supposed to say? Make up names, make up lies like he did? Frame my own people just to take the heat off of me? He's already home now, living his life in his happy little house, and I'm here, left to rot away by a capitalistic system that throws my people in the death chamber every time they get the chance with conspiracy. They are the conspiracy. They don't know everything. They are not God. They try to play God, but they are not God. The crack laws were made to repress us, to hold us down and throw us under the jail cell. They flood the black community with crack, then sentence 100 to one versus cocaine. That's because cocaine is the white man's drug. We can't afford it, it's too expensive. And then they're mad because I went to trial. Isn't that crazy? I get punished for my constitutional right for them to actually do their job and bear the burden of proof. I get punished. I wasn't signing no deal for something I didn't do. Nope, no, I'ma do my time, I'ma do it. They can lock my body up, but they can't cage my mind. I'm still free. Just because you're locked up don't mean you can't be free. I'm still free. I tried crack once. I didn't like it. Heroin was my drug of choice. It made me forget about all the bad things that happened in my life. The only reason they're trying to change the laws now is because it's affecting the white people. That meth is a hell of a drug, and it's everywhere all through the trailer parks and suburbs. That's the only reason they care now, because it's their children getting hit with five and 10 year bids. Oh, now it's the problem. Now it's an American epidemic. How much time did they give you? 45 years. The guard enters and walks by the cell. Lights out. You inmates can talk tomorrow. The lights fade out on the cell. Kayla and Kai lay down in their beds in silence. Kayla begins to cry again. <laughs> Act two. The lights come up on the cell. Kayla is sitting in the bed with her knees to her chest, rocking back and forth, staring off into space. Her heroin withdrawal has kept her up all night. Kai is eating food off of a tray. Kayla's tray is sitting untouched on the small table. Kai looks over at Kayla and shakes her head and continues to eat. You're not gonna eat that? I'm not hungry. You're gonna have to eat something. Firing yourself is going to get you put in SEG. What is SEG? Segregation, the shoe, special housing unit. It's where they put the crazies and the snitches. 
I'm not crazy and I'm not a snitch. I'm just not hungry. Why were you shaking in your sleep last night? I almost punched you. I thought somebody was in here last night. The way you were flopping around like a fish and screaming like you had a demon in you. What's wrong with you? The medicine I take gives me bad nightmares and I'm, I'm still withdrawing from heroin. Why do you all do that? Do what? Put that poison in your body. I, I don't understand. If a drug makes you sick, just come off it. What's the point? Don't you do drugs to make you feel better, not worse? You never did drugs before? No, and I never plan on it. But you are here for drugs, right? No, I'm here for conspiracy to sell crack cocaine and because I wouldn't snitch out my boyfriend's family. Conspiracy is the easiest thing for the feds to get you on because they don't have to prove anything. All they gotta do is get one person, an informant or a snitch, to say they saw you sell drugs or heard from somebody that you sold them drugs and they can convict you. I never touched crack a day in my life. I was scared of it. My daddy was addicted my whole life and I saw what he did to get it. I never wanted to be him, but growing up where I came from, selling dope is the normal way of life. It's like selling tires and people always need tires. I knew my boyfriend sold it, but I didn't think it would affect me. I didn't think I would come to prison for him selling drugs. I was in school. I wanted better. I wanted out of the hood, out of the life. But how was I supposed to do that without money to pay for my books or to keep a roof over my head? It's an oxymoron to be black and try to live the American life. Go to school, get educated. Then you'll get a better job, a better life. You can move into the neighborhood where the police don't roam the streets harassing everybody. A place where you don't get killed for just walking home from the bus stop from a dude up the street or, or a racist pig cop mad because his daughter likes black boys. I tried to do right, do the opposite of what I witnessed every day, tried to be different, and I still ended up in prison. I still fell victim to the game, to the system. We didn't have money either. But you're white, it's different. It's better to be a poor white than a poor black in today's society. The system is designed for us to fail. I'm gonna make it. It's so hard. Oh God, I can't do this. I can't do this. Ah, oh, come on. Here we go again with the tears. Those tears didn't stop the judge from sentencing you to prison. You go home in less than 120 days. How can you cry about that? I would sleep 120 days. 120 days and a wake up. But you don't understand. You don't have that kind of time. I don't understand. You can see light at the end of the tunnel. The light is right there for you. If I don't get an appeal or a law passes, I will die in this place. Time? You want to talk about time? You stand in the courtroom and hear a judge tell you 45 years for something you didn't do. He may as well say you're black and your life doesn't matter. So do this time and make the best of it. Another black person off the streets. One less crack baby we got to worry about on the streets, robbing all the good white ladies of their purses. The prosecutors, the attorneys, the judge, all of them in cahoots. And after they're done railroading you upstate or to the feds, they all go and have lunch and discuss their menial lives over cocktails in an expensive country club. Not every white person is racist. I'm not racist. I got black friends, Mexicans. You're missing the point. I know that everyone is not racist. I'm not racist. 
I love all people. This country is racist, a systemic oppressive device to control and manipulate the minds of its inhabitants. They flash the lifestyles of the rich and famous on TV, giving us false hope that one day we can all be rich, but not if you live in the hood. The only way to get money in the hood is to sell drugs, but in the white school, they get the best of everything. They make you want to go to school and learn. They make the atmosphere conducive to learning. It's deeper than you can imagine. Think, Kayla, think. Have you ever asked yourself why child molesters get less time than drug dealers? Or why there are more minorities in prison when we account for less of the population in America? No, I guess not. That's because you never had to. I've been in a cell with a woman who let random men see naked photos of her two-year-old daughter. Do you know how much time she got? Seven years. Seven. Damn years. She'll do five. Get out and live her life while her daughter is left to fend for herself in a system that doesn't give a damn about her. I never looked at it that way. I would never do that to my daughter. I hate people who touch on innocent kids. You can't blame drugs for that. That's just wrong. You cry about four months, you'll be home with your daughter doing whatever you want while I'm stuck here, a slave to the system. A slave, a new slave with my master's degree, working for free, living in a cell, eating slops, just hoping that one day I'll get some crumbs to survive. My mama used to always say, let him who have wisdom understand, but they don't understand. They'll never understand how it feels to try and do everything right the way they want and still end up in a cage. I'm not gonna let this time break me. No matter what, I'll do my time how I want to do my time. Are you, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay, it's, it's the medicine. Are you okay? I've been trying to get the one I got on the outside, but they told me they don't carry that here, so they gave me the one I, the one like it, I guess. It's okay. I'll just have to deal with it. The guard enters. Guard, can she have some help? She's throwing up blood. It's officer to you, inmate, and that's not my job description. Put a cop out in the medical. She looks fine to me. Tell me, what is your job description? Not to be wiping up blood. The guard exits. Oh God, I don't know if I can do this. I'm ready to go home. Sorry, I, I don't mean to rub it in your face. You're good. These guards are slaves too. They just don't know it. Slaves to the system that controls their livelihood. Every day, waking up to counting down the days until they retire. What kind of life is that? A meaningless one with no identity. Maybe his wife left him. I would have. Look at him. All mean and angry. Do you know why they call us inmates? Because we are prisoners in prison? No. Because we're in an insane asylum. Society labels us mentally deranged with social intelligence issues if we can't follow their man-made laws. Something must be wrong with us mentally to veer off from the path that society has laid out for us. Welcome to America, where there are no prisoners or prisons. The prisons are called correctional institutions or reform camps that resemble more like concentration camps. Our identity stripped from us, labeled convicts, given a new name, and branded with a number. It's all a part of their game to try to brainwash us. 
It's a money game too. The more inmates they get, the fatter their pockets grow. It's a corporation where we the humans are the stock. There are three types of inmates. One, the one who thinks this place is reforming them, becomes friends with the authority, the ones who are oppressing them. Two, the one who manipulates the system and acts like they want them to act in order to gain rank or position in the prison. And three, the one who completely goes against everything the establishment stands for and gets punished severely for it. I'm three. I know these prisons are not for reform. They don't want to help us. They want to make money off of us and keep us in bondage. I'm a political prisoner here because I won't conform to what they want me to be. What are you, Kayla? What kind of inmate are you? Lights out! The lights fade out as Kayla ponders on Kai's questions. Act three. The lights come up on Kai in the cell. Kayla's bunk is empty. Kai wakes up and looks over at the empty bunk. Kai stands up and looks around. Kayla's uneaten tray is sitting on the desk. Kai takes a bite of the bread. The guard enters. Inmate, roll up the bed. What? Where is Kayla? What happened to Kayla? <laughs> the one that was here? Oh, <laughs> she died last night. How? How did she die? I don't know. They said cancer or something like that. Now, roll up this bed. I got another inmate coming in. The guard exits. Kai stands there, contemplating, looking up to the sky. A ticking clock is heard as the lights fade out on cell 11. Forgotten past 
to be reading The Little Prisoner by Robert McCown. It's a fictional piece about a woman giving birth in prison, and I think it's a topic that could use a lot more attention, so it's my honor to be able to read it for you. Thank you for listening. Okay, The Little Prisoner by Robert McCown. I was one of the luckiest prisoners ever because I'd done eight months in prison and I don't remember a single second of it. I was spared the hardship and grief most suffer in prison. I know it may sound crazy, but time meant nothing to me. I hadn't been introduced to it yet because time doesn't exist in the womb. Yes, I was baby number 09344-027. I was born in prison. Having been born in prison isn't as bad as it sounds. It's not like my mother was lying on a steel bunk in a dank cell covered with the standard-issued itchy green waterproof army blankets. Or it's not like correctional officers were standing around with rubber gloves strapped to their elbows waiting to shake me down for contraband. God forbid I bring anything into this world I shouldn't have. Technically, I was delivered in a hospital, but my mother was still a prisoner. Being in a hospital didn't relieve her of her oppressors. She had no control, no rights. Had I died during delivery or days after, she wouldn't have been able to attend my funeral. This is her story. March 23rd. Dear Diary. I hope you don't mind my calling you diary when you're only a pad of paper, but I've never written to a diary before or a pad of paper. And diary just sounds more official. It was my counselor's idea. I wasn't going to take her advice because she sincerely doesn't care, but when she offered me a free notebook to use, it was enough of an incentive. Earlier, my bunkie said, I wish I was pregnant. 
Why? I said, thinking if she says so she can get a free notebook, I'm slapping her. So I can get a bottom bunk restriction. I did feel like slapping her, but I let it be. I have not only myself to look after now. She's a hoe anyway. She's playing a girl in alpha unit and one in echo unit. And when one finds out about the other, she'll get hers. I'm new at this prison stuff. I've only been here a few weeks, but I've got the basics figured out. Mind your own business and avoid getting sucked into other people's drama, because most of these women are walking tornadoes, destroying everything in their paths, leaving behind a trail of broken homes and injured people. My goal is not to become another one of their casualties. Prison is like the board game Sorry. It's all about making it home without getting bumped off. And I've got two pieces to get home now. I called him today, and after that whole spiel about not getting an abortion, he's changed his mind and wants nothing to do with the baby. I asked him why. Well, he doesn't have a valid reason. Sometimes I question his humanity. I'm not going to stress over it. It'll be his loss. I can't force him to stay. I saw the prison OB doctor today. He saw no reason to remove me from general population and said I didn't need any prenatal vitamins. It was my first slap in the face with reality. I'm bringing a child into this world from prison, and I'm doing it alone. May 12th. Dear baby, I'm not calling you diary anymore. It's not as personal. It's like talking to a wall or my bunkie. So I'm calling you baby. I can sense you now inhabiting me, borrowing from me what nutrients are available, zapping my energy. It's okay, though. I wish I could give you more, but I can only give what I have. I'm showing some, but if you didn't know better, you'd just assume I put on weight from the starchy, carb-loaded prison diet. I spoke with my unit team today. Because my due date is long before my out date, foster care was the topic of the day. Don't want to deliver you into the hands of a stranger. I'm sure the state would select a wonderful couple, good people, the type of good people who won't want to hand over the adorable baby they've nurtured all those months to a stranger. An ex-con. I wouldn't blame them. It's a two-sided coin. You never dream of this type of situation until you're in it. Who would think that anywhere in the world, especially America, it would be considered humane to separate a baby from its mother against her will immediately after birth? Their excuse? I was in possession of cocaine. This is their justification to separate mother and child. I could understand if I was a cartel member responsible for bringing large quantities into the country or a major trafficker moving pounds or ounces from state to state into the communities, but I was a petty dealer and user only looking to support my own habit. I was just a plain, tax-paying American citizen with a drug problem. Punishment is the only acceptable answer. A casualty of war. A war as senseless as Vietnam. The war on drugs. I am a POW. July 13th. Dear baby inside me, I decided that baby was too general of a term, so I am now calling you baby inside me. It's more intimate. I keep thinking they're going to come to me and say, you've been humiliated enough. Surely you've learned your lesson. After all, you're pregnant. 
Giving birth is sacred. It's what continues our race. It would be disgraceful to punish a pregnant woman for such a petty offense. Besides, it was only a little cocaine. <sighs> I'm not totally sure, but if you're a boy, you'll be Andrew or Paul. And if you're a girl, you'll be Haley or Kaylee. I've been watching the call-out sheet for a medical appointment, but nothing. I'm beginning to wonder if they've forgotten us. Good night, my love. September 10th. Dear Haley, can you believe I spent my entire second trimester without a checkup? One trip to the warden at Mainline settled that. I've also got good news. I talked my mother into taking you so I don't have to fight the state to get you back from foster care. It's such a relief, but also I worry because my mother's an alcoholic. Then again, she raised me and I'm still here. I'd rather you be with her than strangers. At least I know she'll be delighted to give you back. And we'll always have something in common, having been nurtured into this world by the same woman. We'll be sisters of sorts. What scares me the most is that you won't want to be around me when I come home. That you'll be so attached to my mother that you won't want to come with me. I'll be the stranger I didn't want to see you with. My only solace is you'll be too young to remember any of it. And since I believe everything happens for a reason, I know that when all is said and done, this prison experience will have made me a better person, allowing me the opportunity to appreciate the things in life people take for granted daily, thus enriching the quality of my life. The time will come for us to part, and the days will be long and the nights dark, but you'll be the guiding light at the end of the tunnel. Good night, sunshine. November 26th. Dear Haley, today is Thanksgiving. I knew I was going into labor before it actually happened. I had been having minor, irregular contractions all that weekend. I knew you were coming, but I was trying to hold out as long as possible because I didn't want you to leave me. On Sunday night, I had a dream that I gave birth to you in my bunk, quietly. Only my bunkie knew. We were passing you back and forth from top bunk to bottom. You were laughing and playing. We hid you during count and fed you Reese's peanut butter cups. At daybreak, my bunkie helped me stuff you back inside of me for the day. Then I birthed you again at night. A strange dream, indeed. If only it were possible. I went to sick call that Monday morning. They walked me to R&D, dressed me, and cuffed me. At the hospital, when the doctor told me I was definitely in labor, I started crying. I was losing you, and I was totally helpless to do anything about it. The epidural only covered the physical pain. At least they uncuffed my hands after shackling me to the bed. I was shackled to the bed during delivery. I later found this to be a mistake, but I was grateful for it because it offered the COs guarding me enough comfort to respect my privacy by leaving the room during birth when they weren't supposed to. I stayed in the hospital with you for two days, shackled to the bed the entire time. I was shackled and watched during bathroom use and showers. I barely slept. I didn't want to lose a single night with you. You're the prettiest baby I have ever seen. I still can't believe you're mine. However, it doesn't feel so. Giving you up was the most difficult thing I've ever done. 
It was like saying goodbye before having the chance to say hi. They wouldn't even let me see my mother. The nurse came and took you to her. I ended up having to hand you over to a stranger anyhow. I was taken back to the prison and dressed in. The only relief was being unshackled. I'd never been shackled for so long a time, ever. I could still feel the phantom shackles hours after they'd been removed. My mother brought you to visit me at the prison one last time before traveling the 500 miles home. I laid in bed for a long time. I cried and slept, cried and slept. I felt so light without you. Devoid of substance, I was nearly floating. The doctor pressed me to consider antidepressants as though the cure could be found in a pill. How about letting me go home? That's the cure. My mother's journal stopped there. This is Nicole Shawan Jr. reading Ravenous by Carolyn Ashby. I always run toward the sound of shouting, metal crunching, and glass shattering. My mom would wonder aloud where she went wrong in my rearing. She thought one day she would find me in a body bag or worse, missing. I'd be lost, my bones lonely, bleached by the unyielding sun. I hate hospitals, morgues, and funeral homes, although my activity speaks differently. I am the first to arrive. Mom requested only my company during her final days. She utilized the quiet gift the feared in me while I watched her last breath and the pulse stop in her neck. Life was clear and sharp, death uncovered without discrimination. In the year after she blew with the wind and floated and sunk in her most private rivers, I attended six wakes. We are all aware of the charade. The cans on the shelf are straightened in hopes it will change the flavor of the contents. I yearned for the day my pulse would stop and I could be with my mom. What I didn't see happening, a purposeful disorganization in the kitchen. Products kept and unkept, more flavor to the unsalted, and a stronger desire to live. My name is Adam Faulkner. I'm a poet and an educator, and I'm honored to be reading the brilliant Grace Notes by poet Matthew Mendoza. I chose to stand for this writer because I believe that the racial caste system that is mass incarceration in this country presents probably the greatest threat to American democracy today. And I believe in creativity and education as practices of freedom and that everyone, regardless of circumstance, but especially those whose voices are being systematically silenced, has a vital story to tell.
and I feel called to the work of amplifying those stories in whatever small ways I can, so it is an absolute honor, an honor to share this poem. Matthew, thank you for the opportunity, and thank you for your work. And when I read it, I should say that in this moment of hysteria and coronavirus uncertainty, where we're all swinging back and forth between slight normalcy and fear and doom, where we're all scared and anxious and worried about the people we love, Matthew's poem stopped me dead in my tracks. At a moment where everyone I know and love, some of us for the first time, are faced with real questions of their own mortality, their own freedom. Matthew slows the world down and reminds us to take a breath. He offers us an ode to the beauty of the natural world, the mundane, the ritual, the jumbled prayer of forgiveness and gratitude and the importance, good God, the importance of grace, of goodness, of finding ways to pick our heads up, be kind to each other and notice the sky again and again. This is Grace Notes by Matthew Mendoza. Grace Notes. If there is a place of grace, it is not here, beside this seasonal stream. The water does all the things that water does, burble, trickle, rush, and roar, like the moments of our days become lives, wearing us smooth. We are not river stones. There is no grace here. This is just water, just like food is not love, and washing your hands of the heart's stains is just a myth. Forgiveness does not flow like water. It's fall. It's always fall now. Leaves are not hands. Still, I read their palms. My fingers drift along the frame of the still leaf. I tell the leaf, sometimes you are outgoing. Sometimes you are wary. You find it scary to reveal too much. The trees share decades but their leaves are short-lived, forgotten moments frozen in an orange fire. I practice forgiveness and gratitude and mumble a jumbled prayer as I set the leaf sail. I follow the glassed glide of its early journey. Then, as I stumble over dirt, beer cans, condoms, this becomes a mirror of my own life. The stem, like dreams, make an important rudder the leaf drifts past a rock and my leaf circles in the eddy of a near miss. A boulder becomes a matter of perspective. My own hurt becomes the stream. My pain wearing smooth the lives of people I love. I watch the leaf circle, circle, sink. I go back to the place I started and find another leaf. And if this one sinks, I'll find another. I know that this stream is not forgiveness or goodness or grace, but it is the only water I have. Just thinking what if this was the last time 
Disappointments, the miles and the years. What is left must be real. What is left must be love. There's Something inside me that is so scared to say how important this is. But I believe you know. I need you to know me, but I'm afraid if you know me, you might turn away don't turn away just look past all the masks all the armor and walls disregard my wild eyes followed by body falls when i grind when i shine when i stand when i crawl what's left must be all what is left must be love You see the truth is all of this means less than nothing Nobody's touched by it and all we really have is what we leave behind So release the resentment you held for so long You can mess with your friends even when they were wrong Seek forgiveness, don't live in the past Cause it's gone, let it go Try to treat folks you meet like they feel what you feel. You can tear down and destroy or build up and heal. When they burn what can burn and stole what they can steal. What is left must be real. What is left must be Must be love. Oh, I was just thinking 
Rabbi, I know if we were in person, this is a moment when perhaps you would invite us to take a breath, even though this is a podcast recording and I am sitting at the top of Manhattan and you are sitting in Queens, I still want to welcome you to lead us through a closing breath. It's even harder when tears are right there. But uh, for everyone listening all over the country, all over the world, held together in the same space of art and beauty and love and hope, I want us all to just breathe in that hope, that togetherness, that unity across division. And all together, right now, we will breathe in air. And slowly let it out. Full of gratefulness, full of love, full of care. Thank you all. Thank you, Robbie. Full of listening, full of art, full of community. So many words to use in response to this incredible podcast that our community put together. My name is Kate Meissner. I'm the Prison and Justice Writing Program Director at PEN America, and I want to take just a moment to thank a few people who helped put this together, namely, first and foremost, the person whose voice you just heard, Robbie Pollack, who is the Prison and Justice Writing Program Manager at PEN America, and so thoughtfully and artfully and beautifully stitched together all of the contributions from our readers and writers and musicians into the incredible listening experience you heard today. Um, We also have to thank our Penn America Prison Writing Committee, who judges our awards every year, but a special subcommittee helped curate the readings in this program. Uh, That includes Gloria J. Brown Marshall, Carissa Chesnick, Michael Giuliani, Grace Kearney, Katie Lasley, Ryan D. Matthews, Amanda Miller, and Crystal Young. And the art you saw on the slideshow, if you were watching, was sourced from a couple of organizations, Artists at Risk Connection, Rehabilitation Through the Arts, and the Confined Arts. Of course, we would be remiss not to say a very loud and proud thank you to Haymarket Books for partnering with us on this podcast and to you for listening and lending your ears at a time when people are calling for us to listen. And as Dwayne Betts says, to, to use art as a moment to slow it down so we can really see what we're contending with and listen to the voice of, of, of other artists, and in this case, artists most directly impacted by uh, the justice system. And I'll end on saying, if you're looking for places to get involved in, in translating this emotion into advocacy, I mean, it's all over the internet, certainly, but also our temperature check newsletter, which focuses on um, COVID-19's impact on incarcerated people, but also expands beyond that to look at more holistically the moment in history we're in. There are always action steps and advocacy efforts that you can participate in at the end of those newsletters that can be found at pen.org backslash works of justice. Stay in conversation, hold each other up. I'd also like to thank our summer interns, Brooklyn McIlvain and Nicolette Natale. Uh, for their tremendous effort transcribing and curating the artwork seen in this uh, listening event. And to Kenyatta Emmanuel and 
Hamilton Berry uh, for sharing their music with us throughout this listening experience. Um, to all prison educators, teaching artists who go behind the wall and share love and art. Thank you all and thank you all for listening.